0: Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alex Ventures. BIOS is a community of early-stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc.
1: Jerome, my friend, thanks for joining us today in the BIOS podcast. We greatly appreciate you joining us and excited to host you. uh, Would love for you if you can kick it off with our listeners uh, to give some background on Civilization Ventures and what your investment focus is.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chaz and Ami. Uh, It's a privilege to be on your show. Our investment focus for Civilization Ventures is really three sectors that I've been working in for the better part of the last 15 years. Um, those sectors are digital health and artificial intelligence and how software impacts healthcare. And that's these sectors are in no particular order. Uh, the second sector is synthetic biology and genetic engineering, and how it can impact industries as diverse as pharmaceuticals, agro, industrials, and beyond, even materials and IT. Uh, and the third category is genomics and diagnostics. So the revolution in genetic sequencing with the new uh, entrance of now the proteomics companies, and how this impacts everything from non-invasive prenatal testing, when you're still in the in the f- fetal stage, all the way to uh, minimum residual disease for cancer detection, or even screening for cancer. All these genomics and diagnostics-related companies, including obviously COVID nineteen tools as well, fall into our uh, thesis uh, focus area.
1: Fantastic! Um, and you started your career off as a lawyer, banker, that explored. Really both sides of entrepreneurship as an early stage um, operator and founder before switching over to VC. Can you give us some color on your career arc for our listeners?
0: Absolutely. I mean, to really, I think, understand the arc, as it were, of at least where I come from, it's important to go back even before that uh, to when I came to America as an immigrant at the age of eight, So my family escaped Iran shortly after the revolution uh, in 1982. We lived through the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, But as a kind of a young person, I I experienced revolution. I experienced a war. We escaped through Afghanistan as they were going through their own civil war. And we ended up in Portland, Oregon, uh, which is just a wonderful place to be raised. And so um, I had the experience early in life of starting over with my family and experiencing what it was to go into a new culture, a new language, a new country. And have the family start from scratch. And I, the reason why I think that's important for me is because anyone who looks at my trajectory might say, well, you know, this guy has a degree from uh, Harvard Law School. How did he end up in VC? Like, what does what that arc like? It's not, not that common, um, even though there are some, you know, well-known uh, JDs in our industry, like Peter, or at least in our uh, sector of uh, venture capital, like Peter Thiel and many others. But um, for me, the trajectory of coming to the country as an immigrant meant that I learned the lesson of going from quote unquote zero to one as an individual uh, far before I applied it to being an entrepreneur or founder of my own fund. Uh, when you're an immigrant in the country, you, you know, you literally don't speak the language. So I spent uh, recesses as a third grader staying indoors and, you know, learning the English language, <laughs> going through ESL. My father had to start all over and neither of my parents went to college. So they, you know, he was a business person and he started over in a new country and a new business. And I saw him go through that and become very successful. And so that was always a role model for me as well. And fundamentally that taught me the lesson of not letting other people tell me what I can and cannot do, right? So I think that's a very important lesson in life and certainly an important one for an entrepreneur. Uh, Not letting other people define who you are uh, and define what you can achieve. So just because you don't have a degree from college or a grad degree, or just because you happen to have a JD, doesn't mean you can't learn uh, an enormous amount about a certain domain, in my case, uh, genomics, biology, therapeutics areas I've been working in for 15 years and become an expert in it uh, and become a successful entrepreneur and investor in that space. So the unorthodox background that I kind of have in some regards is um, has been the arc of my life um, to a certain extent. And I think learning those lessons as an immigrant, in my case, was the real foundation for what I'm doing today. Um, but of course, the, the, the kind of the reason I went into genomics and biology has more to do with my passion for biology in particular. I think I was very fortunate growing up in Portland, Oregon, to go to excellent public schools. And we had just excellent uh, AP courses. And I remember very clearly uh, doing Drosophila experiments in high school and just thinking that it was so cool that you could actually influence the evolution of organisms. Uh, and when I wrote down my career path, uh, in high school, I wrote down, I think, three three potential career paths I wrote down. By the way, back then, I had no idea what venture capital was, so that, that didn't make it on the top three. But I think I wrote down geneticist, doctor, or lawyer. Those are the three things that I wrote down. And when I went to Pomona College, which just an amazing experience, it's actually the same college that Jennifer Doudna went to, um, Nobel Prize winner for CRISPR. Um, when, when I went to Pomona College and I was a pre-med there, I realized I didn't enjoy lab work as much as I enjoyed other things. And I and I learned a lot about kind of biology and chemistry, but didn't want to make that my career. That's when I decided that I wanted to go to law school. Probably that decision was influenced a lot by being a refugee and thinking about countries and governments, and you know what made Iran, in my view, such an unsuccessful country when it comes to governance, and the U.S. a more successful country. Of course, under Trump, one could argue how successful we were, but I think we're we, the very fact that we can be resilient to uh unpopular or or certain leaders and still democracy continues and countries like iran or others might fall into dictatorship that was something that i want to explore from an academic perspective that's really the main reason i went to law school and i was very fortunate to go to a great school but when i was in law school i realized that i wanted to be an entrepreneur Uh, and that lesson i remember very clearly was in a class that i took with lawrence lessig and jonathan Zittrain, called the high-tech entrepreneur it was actually the first year the class was being taught at the time, Lawrence Lessig, um, you may recall, he was the special prosecutor for the Microsoft uh, case. Uh, he, had, he had just taken on that role as he was a professor at Harvard Law School. And he and Jonathan Zittrain was brand new, I think, to our faculty. And they had this course, which was unlike anything else in the law school curriculum. Basically, they said, go start a company. This was in 1998, 99. I graduated in 99. This was the peak of the Internet boom. So that was my introduction to kind of what is entrepreneurship. I teamed up with two classmates. We actually came up with a, a site to sell art and ended up kind of not pursuing it because we all graduated with hundreds of thousands of debt and had to start making money. But but and of course, the dot com bubble burst very shortly thereafter. But I think at that point, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And it just took a few years to get there, Chaz. So in some ways, the the mold was the cast was set early but uh, as someone who financed my way through school and you know graduated with a non-trivial amount of uh, debt to uh, my educational institutions, I wanted to first make sure to pay those off before I took excessive risk. Um, and that's kind of why I spent the first seven years of my career in law and banking. Uh, again, very fortunate to have worked at Wilson Sonsini and Goldman Sachs, some of the, uh, the greatest places you can work at, uh, in law and banking, always servicing, entrepreneurs, CEOs, CFOs and working on building companies as a service provider. So that first 7 years taught me a lot of the things that I think entrepreneurs may not be aware of when they're starting a company, which is, you know, how how not to get screwed on your term sheet, you know, what does it mean to have vesting, all these little things that people that might be graduating with a PhD or with an MBA may not intuitively know. I was immersed in that early in my career. And then the stuff that I learned over the subsequent 7 years and beyond was the domain expertise uh, and the operational expertise. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there. But but basically, the arc really began for me uh, much earlier than my work, uh, professional life. And it just taught me to draw kind of a straight line from where I am to where I want to go. And it doesn't matter if there's a few zigzags along the way, or if I need to pay off my debt along the way and do some other things. But as long as you're focused on the end goal, I think you can get there. And that's how it's been for me.
1: And you eventually chose, Shram, to, to come over to the dark side, as they say, <laughs> uh, and, and join the VC world. Um, what inspired that decision for you?
0: Well, it's funny. So I, I had a career as an entrepreneur for, I think, a substantial amount of time. I think, you know, probably entrepreneur years are like dog years, right? You, you, you work one year as an entrepreneur, it's kind of like seven years. So I spent more than a decade uh, starting companies, building companies, was fortunate to have exits uh, in the healthcare and life sciences space. So I I felt like I had done what I wanted to do as an entrepreneur. The first company that I was fortunate to be an executive in as a founding executive was a spinoff from Stanford called NextBio, a genomics data analytics company born in 2004. I was actually their first outside counsel and advisor. And a year later, I joined full-time. That really immersed me in the world of genomics before it was was cool, I would say. This was shortly after the Human Genome Project. um, so that was a wonderful experience. We sold the company to Illumina and, you know, many of our top tier executives are now the leaders of companies like Grail and Illumina and some of our investors are leading companies like garden and others. So we, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Started another company after that, uh, with two Harvard MD, PhD classmates of mine, uh, who actually happened to be brothers, uh, called Argenics and that company is now in phase two trials. So that's been a, so far an 11 year journey. Uh, we started it in 2010. We've now raised $100 million and we're kind of uh, in the throes of our clinical trials and receiving some really compelling data. So having spent a decade doing that, I realized uh, that the next thing I wanted to do would have to be something that I would be passionate about for 10 years, kind of the way I look at it in 10-year chunks, and would have to be something that would capitalize upon my particular skills, passion, and background. And for me, that was its kind of funny. It was almost like positive illumination. I said, well, you know... The thing that I think I would like to start as an entrepreneur would be a fund because I had the experience raising capital from all the well-known biotech VC funds that you and I know, Um, you know, from the NPMs to the column groups, to Venbio and all these wonderful firms, Orbimed, I pitched all of them when I was an entrepreneur. And the the observation that I had was that, first of all, they're kind of old, they're wonderful. They're extremely uh, intelligent, compelling, and uh, extraordinarily important for our ecosystem, but they're old school. And when I when I say old school, I mean, they generally create companies from inside the venture funds, which means the founders are kind of peripheral executives in those companies, um, or they launch companies out of academia, where the academic founders stay in academia. Um, But the model is not that founder centric. It's VC centric. And if you were trying to apply the tech model of entrepreneurship from the 90s and early 2000s to biotech, it actually didn't exist. Very few companies you can point to, like StemCentrics. And I have a lot of respect for my friends who started uh, StemCentrics, like Scott Bill and others. That was really the exception to the rule. And I realized that the world had changed in the last five years. Funny enough, I actually moved to New York for a year to do the fundraising for my company, Argenix, which is based in Manhattan. And when I came, that was in 2015, when I came back to the Bay Area in 2016, it was like there had been kind of a tectonic shift The stuff that I was doing for the prior decade, which was the founder centric model of raising capital on favorable terms for founders where founders remain in control in software companies, in genomics or therapeutics companies, that was now becoming more prevalent. Or there were certainly many more entrepreneurs coming out of academia as PhDs that wanted to run their own companies, didn't want to cede control. And that actually is the norm in tech, uh, in software the internet companies of the late 90s, that's that's kind of what all the founders looked like. But in biology, that was never the case until very recently. And that coincided with me coming back to the Bay Area. So I moved and I you know bought my condo here in South Beach SF and I suddenly realized that South Park literally down the street from me had become the new like so it became the new Sand Hill Road. All the VCs had moved up here in that weird 12 month period and I was like wow it's kind of interesting. This this idea of me starting a fund happens to coincide with Uh, the emergence of the sectors that I've been working in as being more prominent sectors of founder-centric companies. Um, And so it made the decision to launch my fund an easier one because I realized that I had some core competencies as a founder, as as a biotech executive that I could use to mentor and support other founders that were coming into the sector where there weren't that many VCs adopting that model. Uh, you know, if you're coming out of Stanford as a PhD and you want to own 90% of your company and just do a reasonable financing, now in 2021, it's kind of a common thing. You go to Y Combinator, they have their BioTrack. In 2015, it was not common. It was still not common. And that's when I started my pilot fund as really my next startup. I thought, let me start with my minimum viable product, a fund of, you know, just a, literally what I could raise in two months. And from January to February, I raised a few million. And I said, let me just invest that over 12 months see if I could validate my thesis areas as being areas where founders are creating cool stuff. A, B, would I enjoy doing this? C, would I get into the best deals? D, would I be able to add value? Uh, And E, would I get enough traction in a short enough timeframe to be able to raise my next fund? And exactly the same thing that I was doing as an entrepreneur, but now applied to being a fund manager. So it's funny, we do call it the dark side, but for me, it's the same side I've always been on, which is starting something from scratch, and, and trying to take it somewhere uh, in a field where I thought disruption was, uh, w- the field was ready for disruption. And I think the timing in some odd way could not have been better because after that, I mean, that's the, really the same timeframe in which Andreessen started the BioFund and suddenly you had you know, CRV, Lux, DCVC, 8VC, OS, on a lot of these great co-investors of ours beginning their journeys as tech, tech experts going into bio uh, in many cases, bringing on board Stanford faculty and others that are, you know, also quite notable in their own fields. And I started it, you know, as a as a kind of a one-person shop with a small fund. Was very very fortunate that within 12 months we had made 21 investments. I had made 21 investments. Um, I should mention I had an advisory board and you know brought my network to bear and all that good stuff. But um, the investment decisions uh, were just me working really in the literally in the basement of a building in San Francisco. Uh, people who visited me thought it was funny. Uh, and and getting this portfolio together, and we were, I was very lucky to have two early exits from the portfolio. One company got listed on NASDAQ doing gene therapy, a company called G- uh, Cell and Gene, uh, editing a company called Rocket Pharma. Second company called Similar Bio was acquired by Invite. And that helped propel me to raise uh, and close my second fund, which We announced last year at 35 million, but as we sit here today, our AUM, our asset under management is actually north of 50. We've been able to add a lot more vehicles on top. So I've been very fortunate um, to have had that um, traction. Very, very fortunate to have recruited some talent into the team. I think you've met uh, Tomasip Khan as well as Zoya Khan. Uh, Tomasip is a PhD from Stanford who's our vice president Uh, and Zoya who has the same last name, but has no relation to him. Khan is just a very popular last name in the world, it turns out. Uh, she came to us from Smack Health and was running a huge healthcare blog and is now our analyst. And that's really enabled me to scale and run faster. We're now looking at 2000 deals a year. We you know go deep on these deals, look at all the literature, and it's not possible to do that as a one man shop. So that's a very long winded answer Chas, to your question of how I got here. But it started as a journey in 2017 with the thesis around these uh, verticals that we invest in, uh, of course, accelerated by things like CRISPR and AI and uh, microfluidics, et cetera. Uh, And it it resulted in us making some great investments and now doubling down. We now have 40 companies in our portfolio and growing.
1: No, that's fantastic, Sharon. Thank you. Can you give us the overarching mission and inspiration behind Civilization Ventures? You invest in visionary founders that are leading the future of health tech and biology-driven innovation. Can you tell us more about what that means to you?
0: Yes, uh, I think we're in a new era in biology. I think uh, those of us who are in the sector realize that the kinds of innovations that uh, and companies that are being started, products that are being introduced in genomics, synthetic biology, digital health, were not there five, ten years ago and are game changing for industries. And so we wanted to support that. Uh, and I think the enablers of success for this new movement of uh, entrepreneurs, the enablers include investors who have done it before as operators who could help them succeed, who have the template on how to grow a team, how to raise capital, how to execute on commercialization. And given my background in that, I thought it was a natural place for me to be.
1: And you invest across kind of four key main areas, regenerative medicine, synthetic biology, diagnostics, and digital health. Um, How did you decide why these four? uh, Can you give us some more rhymes and reasons behind these?
0: Great point. I mean, I guess there are really three core verticals, uh, as you said, synthetic biology and genetic engineering, digital health and AI, uh, genomics and diagnostics. And within those many subcategories like regenerative medicine, et cetera, I chose those because um, I thought that was the area where I had the most expertise. A, B, there was the strongest growth in those industries. There were emerging sectors in some ways. And C, it was not competitive with the entrenched VC players in the biotech world. And here I'm talking about the Arch, the flagships, the urban the Meds, the Venrocks, et cetera. I thought, you know, I, I don't want to be competing with them. Uh, and so how do I choose a sector where I'm competitively differentiated, where I have an unfair advantage based on my individual background and where there's also a lot of opportunities and those were the sectors?
1: And as far as those sectors go, I mean, I, I definitely think uh, differentiated compared to the old world VCs that we know. And. Exciting to see that the tech bio movement push these forward. Um, can you talk about kind of the, the theses that you've built in each of these areas?
0: Sure, sure. It, it, again, it was very organic for me. Um, I, I've been working for a decade as an entrepreneur. The first company that I was a founding executive in was called Next Bio out of Stanford. The idea there was to apply. And the, the founders, uh, Ilya Schmidt, Saeed Akhtari, and Mostafa Ronagi are, you know, very accomplished in this space. Mustafa Ranagi was most recently the CTO of Illumina, uh, which he became after starting Nextbio. You know, being an early executive in that company taught me how to build something from zero to one in a sector that didn't have it. So in our case, we were building a search engine, a correlation engine to unify the world's genomic information and make it useful for researchers. There was no template for that. Ilya was a product manager who started from scratch. Later, we hired Satnam Alag as our VP of engineering and CTO. He built the cloud computing infrastructure for it. He's now the SVP of Grail, running all their infrastructure uh, and an amazing, amazing human being to top. And so just being early in the industry in the early 2000s and building that company, which was later acquired by Illumina, taught me where this uh, industry was going. Uh, so that was So if you look at my thesis now, genomics and diagnostics, it's a direct uh, extrapolation of what I was doing at NextBio. Um, the work that I did as a founder of Argenics and the first CEO of that company, where we were using microRNAs as molecular probes to discover novel pathways in cancer, you know, one could one could argue that has strong connections with things like synthetic biology, where again you're looking at biology through a different lens, looking at um, modern advancements, and uh, being involved in therapeutics for the better part of a decade through that company taught me a lot about the new trends in biology that have been game changing, like. Uh, immuno oncology. And so, you know, to go from checkpoint inhibitors and immuno oncology like CTLA4, PD1, PDL1 drugs to the other immuno oncology drugs that are like CAR Ts and TCRs, which does have a synthetic biology element to it, it all kind of follows linearly. And so, once you're in the space, and I was as an executive building that company, I had to become intelligent on our, se- on our field of oncology. Uh, we actually have an immuno oncology asset ourselves. So, I had to become intelligent on immuno oncology. That's adjacent to CAR T and and synthetic biology. And I've been working in biology now for the better part of 10 years. So it all just followed very naturally. And I began to see that, well, the majority of these big VCs are investing in small and large molecules. Um, And that's kind of what they know and that's their bread and butter. If you have a company coming out of Berkeley that's founded by a PhD who doesn't want to give up 99% of her company on day one, and she wants to have mentorship from a VC, uh, and she wants to you know create her own path in the same way that larry and sergey created their own path for google who would that investor be there was none there was no operator micro vc fund in 2017 uh, when i started this fund that could actually help that entrepreneur that i could see and so i thought this is a great area for me to come in with my expertise and add value fortunately since then many other vcs have also uh raised their funds uh many of them with operating experience as well and that's part of an important ecosystem that we all are members of and we all support each other. But I think the thesis in 2017 that I wrote on a piece of paper and that I had on my deck in late 2016 uh, was exactly this.
1: No, that's fantastic, Sharam. And you've given us a great background on what Civilization Ventures does and your thesis here. Can you talk a little more about what makes a Civilization Ventures portfolio company?
0: Well, we really focus on, Uh, the key drivers of success uh, as we view them. So it begins with the founder, right? She has to be someone who is uh, steeped in her domain, uh, that has deep expertise in what she's doing. Um, She has to have that grit, that kind of fire in the belly that I think sets uh, successful entrepreneurs apart from the average person walking the street. You know, it's glamorous before you've done it, Once you do it, you realize it's actually not at all glamorous. It's very difficult. You will get in disputes with your co-founder. You will have problems with your board. You're going to have problems commercializing. You'll have people quit. You'll have all kinds of things go wrong. Everything that can go wrong uh, may go wrong. And so you have to be ready for that. And so we look for that resilience and that grit in the founders that we speak with. Uh, We try to stay away from founding teams that have, you know, uh, husband and wife dynamics or sibling dynamics, unless we can justify it. Uh, If it just if it's pure old nepotism, we think that's not a success factor. Just to give you one example of the lens that we use to analyze, Um, if we have founders that are working together who have never worked together before, in other words, they're marrying on the first date, not a great success factor. So we have our own lens that we look through. We actually I I came up with a qualitative uh, way of looking at companies, but then I also quantified it through a scoring system that we now internally use as well. Um, And it's actually, you know, I think a pretty interesting one. And we'll we'll see historically how it performs. Uh, So far, so good. But the lens we look at, it starts with the founders. Then we have to obviously focus on the technology. Is it differentiated? Is the IP secured? Uh, Is there freedom to operate? Um, Is the product better, cheaper, or faster? And what does the competitive landscape look like for this product? Though that analysis on the IP is critical. And it's one area where I actually see a lot of investors now coming into biotech not having even the basic expertise to be able to execute on. So and I think that's causing some weird dynamics with valuations and with what gets funded. But I
1: completely agree. Um could not agree more in saying that we're still in the early innings in tech bio and to see now the parallels that we are starting to draw on from. The golden age of the internet that revolution that saw comp sci majors want to drop out of undergrad and start companies um the latent demand i still feel like in the space for founders wanting to build stuff uh can you imagine if the entrepreneurial culture was shifted in academia and people want to start more companies out have phd programs you see professors now more and more often starting to leave their positions and go run companies um the backlog of folks to do this could be absolutely insane and we're already in a pretty frothy time uh, but still feels like the early innings as far as where we could be and where we're going um, cannot agree more
0: totally right Chas. Um and an example of an entrepreneur who's just totally, really exceptional is uh, christina Smolke, uh synthetic biology pioneer from stanford tenured faculty who left her position to run her company anthea we're privileged to be one of her investors but that's the kind of grid, like when I spoke with her on the first call, uh, I thought, wow, here's someone who, you know, left that kind of a position with that much conviction to run a company. You know, you know how we're where we write a check. Right. That was an easy call, even though we actually came into that company after the initial round of financing. So um, the second focus area for us, as I mentioned, is the founders. And of course, the third is. What does the market look like? At the end of the day, this is not a non-profit enterprise. You know, we have to make sure that we invest in the best founders and the best game-changing technologies that have a market where there can be a route to an IPO or an acquisition at some point. And I think that lens also takes some experience. I feel you know, at the end of the day, it's easy to invest in cool stuff and say, "Look, I just invested in." You know, this cool idea of 3D bioprinting your toenails. Okay, that sounds interesting. Is there a market for that? You know, can you actually implant it and make it work? You know, I'm using a foolish example, but at the end of the day, a lot of stuff sounds cool if you don't understand it. You know, cold fusion sounds cool, but is it feasible? Uh, If you're Bill Gates, you could afford to invest in a lot of things. But if you're a fund, you have to invest in moonshots that actually have some realistic chance of happening. Otherwise, your fund will... Uh, Will not succeed and actually this is an interesting point to address venture funds on average lose money and it's because they don't do the basics. Uh, They don't have the expertise to analyze the companies they're looking at. They are enamored with the idea of investing in cool stuff without even thinking about the exit opportunity for these companies. They are not sensitive to valuation. um, And they oftentimes ignore founder dynamics because they've never been a founder. Uh, And so hopefully, hopefully. Some of the scar tissue that I have uh, will enable us to uh, make some good decisions and, and really support some great entrepreneurs as we have.
1: Fantastic. I'll pass over to my colleague Ami kind of, to talk about as you think about this next generation of portfolio companies for Civilization Ventures, really what that means as you kind of dawn into this new era of bio.
2: Awesome, thanks Chaz. So we're seeing this rapid advance in things like next-gen sequencing, CRISPR technology, diagnostics. I mean, the list really goes on. What is so exciting to you about the merger of bio and engineering?
0: You know, this is a really interesting topic. And I think um, I I do feel like a lot of the dialogue in the uh, among the crop of tech investors that are now in bio is dominated by the by, by the idea of engineering being applied to biology, and and I have nothing against that whatsoever. But I don't mind being a little controversial and saying that, you know, like some of our most important investments aren't predicated on AI. They're you know they're they're using new chemistry, they're using new biology, they're using. In, f- in fact, I called the sector that I was planning on investing in new biology in 2017. I realized I was the only one calling it that. So I just started calling it synthetic biology. But now people are calling it tech bio. I think there are a lot of terms you could use. But at the end of the day, engineering is a very important component of it. Uh, but it's just one component. It's you know, one side of the coin. Uh, there are companies that are entirely based on engineering, for example, chemoinformatics, bioinformatics companies where you're designing uh, you know peptides or large molecules or small molecules based on AI or in some cases even uh, quantum algorithms, which we have, we had a portfolio company in that category as well. Um, but but at the end of the day, the most compelling things that we see are not just AI based. And I do feel like that's one distinction between civilization ventures and some of the other uh, funds that are out there, especially some of the tech funds that are doing bio, is that in every discussion, it's all about engineering, it's all about AI. And that's great. Um, it's a feature of many of our companies' uh, tech stack, but it's not the central point of it. Let me give you one example. Um, we have a company called Foresight Diagnostics out of Stanford. We led the series A uh, just a quarter ago, uh, and it's doing, it's still in stealth mode, but it's doing absolutely amazing work on uh, MRD, which is minimum residual disease in cancer. This is something that I've unfortunately had some experience with myself. My father just went through bladder cancer uh, and had his bladder removed through what's called a radical cystectomy, and now the question post-operatively is whether he should be on adjuvant therapy. And in this case, checkpoint inhibitors like Opdivo. Uh, and really one of the gating items for that analysis is does he have minimum residual disease? The bladder is not there, that they remove the, in this type of surgery, they remove the bladder, the prostate, the lymph nodes, all in that area, but maybe the cancer metastasized to some distal site, like a, another lymph node. And so before I could give my father advice on whether he should go on a, a drug that costs $150,000 a year, at this point, not really even reimbursed by Medicare for this indication, and, and suffer another year at the age of 80 of, of, of the adverse effects of these drugs, I need to know, does he have residual disease? Otherwise, what's the point? And so those tools aren't out there right now for bladder cancer. You could do a the panel, you could do, we actually have a company in our portfolio, which was has been instrumental in my work with my father over the last year, called Convergent Genomics, total game-changing uh, assay they have, which, which is able to find Bladder cancer uh, when there's some ambiguity in the in the detection stage, and they actually did so for my own father, uh, but their test is not yet approved by the FDA. And so there's no right now. People are doing scans, right, CT scans, and seeing you know do we see something on a scan, and that's not good enough. That's not nearly sensitive enough. And so that's what we invest in. We invest in technologies that have uh, practical applications to changing people's lives for the better, and it, and they bring together all these things. So Foresight Diagnostics, the company that I mentioned doing MRD for uh, lymphomas, they use software and and informatics and all kinds of advanced tools. They use chemistry, they use uh, other components of their technology that I probably can't get into, but it's, it's not just that it's applying engineering to biology, although there are companies that do that. So I think there are people that are probably more qualified to speak to the, the specific companies that are only focused on engineering and how that impacts biology. We have some great companies in our portfolio, like Outpace Bio, that's Come out of Lyle Pharma. That's doing that. That's 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 sent where the thesis is really focused on, um, you know, using Rosetta or using these engineering tools. Uh, but it's not the dominant thread in our thesis. It's a really important enabler of our thesis.
2: Right. Those are great points. I think another major example of that type of biological innovation that's deeply rooted in biology itself is with COVID and and mRNA technology that's really driving all these vaccines. Moving on a little bit, um, it seems that we are entering this boom cycle of biotech. We've seen many S1s filed this week, a lot of capital being thrown around. With this type of hype comes hype artists. How do we as investors identify overhyped, oversold companies and and prevent having any Theranos 2.0s? Well, I
0: think we are clearly in a bubble. I don't think there's any, so I started my career in 1999 uh, and I was an econ major at Pomona College. So I remember, you know, once you're an econ major, you study what is a bubble. And there are classic signs. You know, there's uh greater fool theory and animal spirits taking over the markets and people investing because there's someone who's going to buy it for more versus the, the value that they see in it. And I hate to say something controversial, but you know, I think is it called NFTs or NFX? I forgot what what the term is for these NFTs, uh, yeah. NFTs, these it's outside of my domain, so you'll excuse my ignorance, but these, these you know basically uh, J- JPEG files, whatever that people are paying crazy amount of money for us, that's like buying Beanie Babies back in the 80s or tulips in the Dutch uh, uh, bubble uh, centuries ago. It just doesn't make sense. Unless that person is a wonderful artist and is something you're gonna hang on your wall or maybe trade with your friends. I think at the end of the day, if you're buying something because you think someone will just buy it from you at a greater price out of their ignorance or their, their animal spirits, then that's kind of speculative. and you're seeing that now in biology. You're seeing it in, com- and, and by the way, it's easy to detect. If you see a company that's valued at three or four billion dollars and they don't have a working product, and they're claiming to do something which they haven't demonstrated they can do, and they have zero revenues, that's probably not a great investment. Uh, you know, it, it, they could become the next Illumina. More likely, they won't. Uh, and if you add up the market cap of all these hype companies, it's probably greater than the actual. Uh, market size they're addressing, and so when you see that, you recognize that we're in a bubble. And there's there are clear reasons why we're in a bubble in certain sectors. I don't want to say it's in all sectors, but in certain sectors, the reasons are there's nowhere else for capital to go. Interest rates are at zero, essentially in some countries in Europe. Elsewhere, they're in negative territory when you take into account inflation. And so you know, rich people have nowhere to put their money, and institutional funds have nowhere to put their money. They have to. Pile it in and there's a lot of hype around cool technologies and and so it, it, you know, drives up the price. Um, We have to be very careful as investors that we don't partake in that because it's it's all cool in the moment to get into a deal when there's FOMO and the valuation goes from 10 million on Thursday to 20 million on Tuesday of the next week, because Y Combinator taught that company to do precision pricing of their safes. But as an investor, you're going to look really bad. When the music stops and you have to sit on a chair and there's nowhere to sit because that was just a stupid decision. And so we try to be very disciplined about that. Um, our check sizes will reflect what we think is the, uh, the nature of the tech of the company, its chances of success, and the valuation. Uh, at the end of the day, valuation is very important. Uh, and I think some entrepreneurs, I do have to say, may be making a mistake in optimizing only for valuation at the expense of the type of capital they're taking in. The most important determinant of a success of success for uh, an entrepreneur when it comes to their board and their investor base is who is that investor? It's not the most important determinant of success, period, but in terms of their selection of investors, you know, who that person is, what that person has done before, what value they can add should be the central question they're asking.
2: Definitely. We're living in a very unique time right now. Would would love to kind of close off the podcast with some rapid fire questions, kicking sure. it off. As we come to a close, kind of start to reflect on on this podcast, as both a successful founder and now investor, what advice would you give to early stage founders who are starting off or thinking of starting companies in life sciences?
0: I would say first and foremost, focus on your unfair advantage. You have to be able to look in the mirror and ask yourself what it is about you or your technology which sets you apart and will be defensible for the next 10 years. Uh, you have to look to where the puck is moving, not where the puck is today, as Wayne Gretzky would say, and for those that follow hockey. And uh, I think too many founders don't do that. Uh, they have incremental improvements in their products over the current standard of uh, care or the current uh, dominant players in the markets they're entering. And they think that being incremental is good enough, and it's not. Uh, you have to be 10x better or 100x better. So that's that's one thing that I would ask them to consider. Two, I think being a founder, you know, being a CEO, et cetera, it's, it's, it's not... If you think if you're doing it to be glamorous or to put that on your resume, you're definitely doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, you are you should always be doing what you think you have a differentiated advantage in. What is your competitive advantage and what do you enjoy? So I would tell founders to follow their passion. If you're starting a company or joining an early stage startup, it's going to take a toll on your life. You're going to probably you know delay things like starting a family, buying a house, et cetera. And you should think about that. You should think about the cost of that to your life. And you should only do it if you know you can't not do it. That was always the case for me. Uh, I, When I started a company or joined an early stage company, I did it because I knew it was the only thing that I'd be happy doing, essentially. Uh, and I realized that I had to do that to fulfill my own mission in life. And if it's not that compelling for you, you won't be able to stick it through in the tough times.
1: Strom, as, as we look forward here, can you describe 2015 biotech? Where, where will we be?
0: I think twenty fifty biotech, that's, what is that? Uh, you know, 30 years into the future. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, again, in the context of my own father's recent uh, journey with cancer. Like, I don't think we're going to be giving people indiscriminate chemotherapy that wipes out their whole system and kind of destroys them for f- six months so that they can have a shot at, you know, uh, survival. I think things are going to be much more targeted I think, um, we'll have, I think we'll have a cancer vaccine. I think there will be ways of preventing disease which don't exist today. I think Alzheimer's will be solved. I think many of the things that are plaguing us today, I don't think will be issues in 2050. Uh, I think that the issues in 2050, if I can use my crystal ball, which I'm sure is going to be inaccurate, will revolve around a lot of different things. Uh, I think sustainability of the, of the planet will be a big issue. It's not clear to me that the technologies we're seeing today will be capable of keeping up with the waste and pollution and destruction of the planet, which is happening. Uh, It's not clear to me that the existing pollution that's out there will be, or plastic in the oceans is something that we can readily clean up, much less the pollution that will exist 20 years from now. It's not clear to me that we as an advanced country that hasn't been able to even keep our own uh, environment as clean as it should be, will have the right to dictate to other countries that are developing what they can do. That's gonna cause a lot of tensions. Uh, And I think there will be enormous issues of equity around biology. Um, For example, uh, the the one area where I think ML and AI will have deep impact will be in genetic engineering uh, optimization. And I think the babies born in 2050 will look pretty different in terms of uh, how they can be optimized than the babies born today. Uh, By that point, you'll be able to select traits. You'll be able to optimize intelligence. I just got my Nebula report back, which... Uh, it's kind of speculative, but they they give you like 80 or 90 reports based on everything they can find about your complete genomic genomic sequence. They did a you know deep sequence for me, and a lot of it is speculative. You know they'll say you know you're in the 99th percentile of this based on one report or one study that had 30 people in it, so you can't really rely on it. But by 2050, those things will be reliable, and you will be able to create kind of a lot of things that today would be considered controversial. So society and the politicians and the legal regimes uh, will have to catch up. And if if it turns out that by 2050, the wealthiest Americans are able to engineer the smartest kids and the best athletes or whatever traits they want, that's going to create enormous issues of equity. And at that point, the government will have an important role to play to level the playing field, right? So I think there will be all kinds of issues on the table that will extrapolate the inequities we see today in an an, uh, exponential way that we have to get in front of. And I actually hope that in the next chapter of my career beyond venture, I can have some role in that as well.
2: With that in mind, do you have any calls for startups?
0: We're always, so it's funny because we just talked about 2050, you know, we don't, it'd be very difficult for us to invest in a startup today that's gonna do something in the year 2050, because again, our time horizon is, you know, 10 to 12 years uh, as venture capitalists. And it's possible that we invest in the next Microsoft of genetic engineering And 30 years from now, they're still around, but at the end of the day, our horizon is a little bit shorter. So I would say that my call for startups is, let's look to where where we're gonna be in the next 10 years and figure out how we can optimize things like cancer detection to, you know, anyone who goes through cancer treatment, I would like to see them have a test post-operation that tells you an an MRD, minimum residual disease test, that tells you exactly uh, whether or not you have cancer still in your system. Of course, Grail and Thrive and others are doing a great job of using methylation markers and ML to come up with screening tests. And even those should be optimized. So I think that we will cure many more people of cancer by preventing it and catching it earlier. Uh, And I would like more startups to focus on that. Uh, We already see a lot, but we could could always use more. Uh, And I think I would love to see startups use AI, ML, and other tools to figure out the right microorganisms that could eat all the plastics in the oceans and the microplastics and create a a non-hazardous byproduct from that like that would be something that i'd love to invest in
1: once again i'm sorry to hear about your, your father and wish him a, a quick recovery on the men there um, and hopefully work from your portfolio companies and others can can help them uh, get on track in that sense uh, and thanks for coming on the show here and sharing your insights with us we appreciate your time your background with civilization ventures it's an exciting organization that i hope that a lot of founders listening to our podcast will reach out to you and take you up on uh, a coffee or something. In the meantime, when we're back in this (laughs) real-world environment. Um, Any closing thoughts?
0: Thank you very much. No, uh, thanks for asking that final question. Please, if you're out there as an entrepreneur and you're looking to uh, be backed by a team that's passionate about science and looking to help you succeed, uh, feel free to reach out to us. The the best email to use would be info, I-N-F-O, at civilizationventures.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Shahram SN. So, at S H A H R A M as in Mary SN is my Twitter handle, or at Civilization BC is our funds handle. And uh, we look forward to interacting with the next generation of leaders. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit BIOS.community or Alix.vc.